Hello and welcome to another episode of Forgotten Cello Music. This is from Traveling Cello. Hi, I'm Aaron. Today, episode 25. I've been going back and forth a little bit between Robert Schumann's advice to young musicians and women composers in the last four or five episodes. Today is Louise Ferranc, née Dumont. She was born in 1804 and died in 1875. Today, I will specifically look at some entries about the composer Louise Ferranc. She was not a cellist. She was a pianist and a composer who was employed at a conservatory as a professor of music. Let's get on with reading. Today, this female composer, Louise Ferranc, can be found in the Groves Dictionary of Music and Musicians, uh, 1919 edition, and Baker's Biographical Dictionary of Musicians. For obvious reasons, she was not included in Vasilevsky's tome about the history of the cello. Uh, she wrote only one work that was specifically for cello, and that is a cello sonata. She did write a couple of piano trios, the standard scoring violin, uh, cello, and piano, and then another one for flute, cello, and piano, I believe. Now, some statistics. IMSLP slash Wikipedia lists 51 works that have opus numbers, six works without opus numbers. She arranged and edited many, many works by lesser-known composers, as well as uh, by composers that are still well-known today and for, were very well-known and played often in those days. For example, she edited many keyboard works by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, uh, arguably the most famous son of the great Johann Sebastian. The first selection comes from the Mighty Groves set of dictionaries. This is from Volume 2, from the 1919 Groves edition, Groves Dictionary of Music and Musicians. At the very outset, it states that married to Frank Jacques H.A., that is, who also was a lesser composer but involved in music as a writer, uh, much like Schumann was, except for Schumann was also very involved in composition, as we all know. To begin, Ferenc Louise, born in Paris, May 31, 1804, died there, September 15, 1875, was a sister of the sculptor Auguste Dumont, and aunt of Ernest Reyer. She studied under Reicher, and at an early age could compose for both the orchestra and piano. 
She married in 1821 and made several professional tours of France with her husband, both performing in public with great success. Madame Ferenc was not only a clever woman, but an able and conscientious teacher, as is shown by the many excellent female pupils she trained during the 30 years she was professor of the piano at the conservatory. And those dates are November 1842 to January 1873. Besides some remarkable etudes, sonatas, and pieces for the pianoforte, she composed sonatas for piano and violin, or piano and violoncello, trios, two quintets, a sextet, and a nonet, for which works she obtained in 1869 the prize of the Académie des Beaux-Arts for chamber music. She also wrote two symphonies and three overtures for full orchestra, and several of her more important compositions were performed at the Conservatoire Concerts. More than by all these, however, her name will be perpetuated by the Trésor des Pianistes, a real anthology of music, containing chef d'oeuvre of all the classical masters of the harpsichord and pianoforte from the 16th century down to Weber and Chopin, as well as more modern words of the highest value. Her Traité des Abréviations was published in 1897. See also Trésor des Pianistes, GC. And immediately, uh, for comparison, I go into the Baker's Dictionary of Musicians. Ferenc, Jeanne-Louise, née Dumont, wife of preceding, that is, Ferenc Jacques H.A. Louise Ferenc, born Paris, May 31, 1804, died there September 15, 1875. She was a pupil of Reicha. Moschelis and Hummel also influenced her studies. She married in 1821. In 1842, she was appointed professor of pianoforte playing at the conservatoire, retiring on a pension in 1873. She was a fine pianist and a remarkable composer. Symphonies, overtures, a nonet, a sextet, quintets, quartets, and trios. Sonatas for pianoforte and violin, a variety of pianoforte pieces, etc. Most of her works were published, and many were often played in public. The Prix Chartier was twice awarded to her. After her husband's death, she continued his part of the work on the Trésor de Pianiste. She is the authoress of the Traité des Abréviations, employée par les clavicenistes de Interestingly, there is a longer entry in the groves, uh, a little more wordy, but it seems as though the bakers included something a little bit more interesting when you're looking at a project such as mine, which is uh, neglected or forgotten music, 
period, um, in my case, forgotten cello music, what I find interesting in the Bakers is that most of her works were published. He says that, but Groves does not. Now that's interesting to me, uh, because although I've never heard of Ferenc, it seems that she was an incredibly popular composer in her day. Her works were published, and Bakers even says that her works were played often. Now I did a, a little search. There's not a lot of recordings out there, but Apple Music actually does have several Ferenc recordings wherein there are only compositions by Louise Ferenc on those albums. And they are, they are very pleasant uh, pieces of music. Just from the cello part alone, it feels not only well put together uh, with a very good working knowledge of string playing and not to mention composition and theory it's just a very pleasant piece of music the the musical lines are beautiful melody melodically speaking it gives a, a wonderful ebb and flow just like you would in a in a very nice, nicely put together sentence or paragraph of someone talking. Specifically about the cello sonata in the first movement, and speaking about the melody. Louise Ferenc begins with a beautiful floating melody which elegantly introduces you to the sonata. After eight measures, she increases the number of notes, given, giving it a more rapid feel. This helps retain the attention of the listener and of course the player, past the initial phrase and passes the line off to the piano for an entire statement of the theme. But remains, the cello, that is, remains involved by way of some bass lines, uh, a little bit more punctuating type playing, uh, outlining chords, you know, double bass stuff that you might see in the orchestra or left-hand piano, of course. Now the cello comes back in as the melodist in the second theme, which immediately elevates the interest level of the writing. It, it's a little bit more intricate. Uh, it has some uh, inventive use of rhythm, notes, and ornaments, specifically turns um, at the outset of the second theme. Now a little bit more about the biographical entries from Groves and Bakers. I think one can ascertain from the entries alone that she was quite well known. She made it into the conservatoire as a professor. Her accomplishments pushed her upward into the world of not only composition and piano, but as a professor. She was a known teacher. She was obviously sought after. She mentored many students into music, musical careers. And as already pointed out in Baker's, most of her music was published and performed often. This is surprising from the perspective of a composer, period. Not 
with no respect to um, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, just how few composers can get a couple of works published, let alone their entire output, or at least most of their output. Uh, that's quite an accomplishment. So she must have been very well liked and probably enjoyed quite a, a decent amount of monetary reward from the, the purchases. Now, unfortunately, as we know, as we don't know, I could put it that way, Louise Torbank's music, uh, a myriad of composers and often very good, accomplished composers, whom we even consider great composers, uh, their music goes to the way of neglect. It falls to the side. Even the mighty Johann Sebastian Bach was largely neglected, as the story goes, until Felix Mendelssohn performed the St. Matthew's Passion in 1829. And from all accounts, it was because of this performance that brought interest, that brought attention back to Bach's music and uh, inclined people to take the scores and dust them off and begin learning them again. So Bach died in 1750. Mendelssohn performed the St. Matthew's Passion in 1829. Uh, so it was basically a relic of history, music history, and a and we know that his music was used as a compositional tool, a learning device where people could learn as they would consider an archaic compositional technique. And even, you know, uh, too complex, even in his day, he was considered archaic and over the top, too florid or too complicated, uh, too polyphonic because they were going to more uh, chorale type or um, uh, chordal type of music rather than the polyphony from the days of uh, Schrupp's Palestrina and uh, Taliesin before that. So about 70 years his music just lay there. All this wonderful, grand, fantastically, expertly inspiredly written music was just not played. Now, with that, I I will say, obviously, I'm no Mendelssohn. I I see the numbers. I do hope that at least a couple of people take interest in some of the music that I'm presenting. A lot of it, I understand, uh, is not going to be picked up by pretty much anybody. Um, you know, as I said before, there are players out there that are recording neglected music and you don't hear about those so I I understand uh, the project I'm doing here is is not for the popular appeal that's for sure having said that I also understand why Bach and Mozart and these wonderful great composers are being played over and over again um, it's, it's just really good music, and it does inspire. What I'm doing is spreading the music of the neglected, like I said, in hopes that someone will find the music and, and uh, explore it more deeply and decide to pick it up and play it. 
And, you know, occasionally we even find this with uh, well-known modern players, not just people I've never heard of, but uh, I cite Stephen Esselis because I, I just was so pleased with his album selections, the music on his albums throughout the 90s and the 2000s and even more recent albums. You know, he seemed, Isolus seemed to promote good quality works by these composers, and indeed they are fantastic pieces of music. And uh, he always, to my mind, is able to produce, even if it's a work that is considered uninspired or just low quality even by a great composer, uh, he squeezes out uh, higher quality somehow. Uh, however, I think he's even said that, you know, works by Cessance, for example, are, are misunderstood and, and not taken, people don't take the time to really get to know them. Uh, that can be said also for the foray pieces of music, as, you know, like his sonatas. Or Anton Rubinstein, who wrote two cello sonatas. Just lovely pieces of, of music. I must admit that I don't know exactly why major performers don't perform these types of works like the sonatas that are intriguing, interesting, uh, beautiful works of art. However, you might have a good bet and surmise that attracting the public and earning more than a pittance has something to do with it. Be that as it may, I might maintain that it is worth trying out at least several works every year to keep intrigue and a sense of exploration and excitement elevated. Uh, even if those pieces of music are neglected works by great composers, as I've said, for Ray Sessons, um, maybe even some works by Beethoven, like his variations, three sets of variations, which are getting a little bit more playtime nowadays, but not nearly as much as the sonatas. Go to IMSOP and look these up, or go to your local university uh, music library and peruse the shelves and find something interesting. I, I know for a fact in every university music library I've ever perused through myself, there is always something to be found that I've never heard of before. I don't know, they must have been thinking ahead, and uh, that was really wonderful uh, to be able to do that. So I've checked out and read through many, many, many dozens of music pieces of music that uh, I've never heard anyone play in public. Uh, Maybe a recording here and there for some of those. Now, as if you are a performer, decide on some some several dozen pieces to just uh, read through. And then narrow it down and choose a couple of works that you will seriously study and perform. Prepare them for a public performance. Uh, and I say this because I, I do think that it does help us to maintain that level of intrigue, that level of excitement. You know, you're out there exploring, discovering. Maybe it's something akin to going out and exploring 
the hillside or the mountainside and you come across a cave or a beautiful tree or a clearing that has wonderful flowers in it, I, whatever it is, you know, uh, it, it really does bring us to a different spot in our understanding of what is out there and what people were doing. You know, so we can, if we put these music, these uh, neglected pieces next to the great pieces, oftentimes we really begin to understand why those are great pieces of music and why they appeal to the wider audience versus the neglected pieces. Instead of just accepting that these are great pieces of music and people like them, you can find out for yourself. But it's not a superficial study. You know, get really, get really into both the great works and the neglected works. Maybe you'll discover for yourself that there is something of intrigue, even some greatness in the neglected works. After all, Schumann did say, Be not prejudiced against works unknown to you. With that, I wish you a good day. Remember to play more forgotten cello music and see you in the next episode.
Thank mm-hmm. you.